you walk into the elevator and turns out you're standing next to your local lawmaker. You have 20 seconds. What do you do? What's your elevator pitch to solve the mental health boarding crisis? I mean, do we start with the shortage of hospital beds or the loopholes in parity laws or the story of how JFK's assassination might have changed the course of mental health care history? Turns out there's a lot to cover. So let's pause and take this elevator back in time to understand the roots of the crisis. Next floor, while we wait. I'm Sanya Ali. And I'm Avni Kulkarni. This is While We Wait, a podcast series where we tackle the mental health boarding crisis. Through the series, we will explore our fragmented mental health care system in the United States. Boarding is another word for waiting, a delay in care where patients are stuck often between the emergency room and the next step in treatment. These stories will paint a clear picture of why boarding is not, in fact, a surprising outcome for patients experiencing a mental health emergency. While we wait for solutions, and while patients in crisis wait for help, let's take the time to unpack the reasons for why this is happening. In today's episode, we step outside the hospital and dive headfirst into the archives to learn about a seismic shift in mental health policy that left us scrambling to fill the cracks for decades. Please note that in this episode, we'll be pulling from historical audio that uses outdated and potentially offensive language to describe mental illness. Part one, the promise. From the cabinet room of the White House, October 31st, 1963. I'm delighted to approve this bill. It will make possible a major attack on the problems of mental retardation and mental health. Pause. To be clear, we no longer use the R word to refer to intellectual disability or mental illness. In fact, in 2010, Congress passed a law to stop using the R word. Under this legislation, custodial mental institutions will be replaced by therapeutic centers. It should be possible within a decade or two to reduce the number of patients in mental institutions by 50% or more. The new law provides the tools with which we can accomplish this objective. The Community Mental Health Act was the last bill President Kennedy signed in October of 1963, just one month before his assassination. That law was part of a larger movement called deinstitutionalization, which focused on shifting mental health care treatment from large state-run hospitals to local therapeutic community centers. But unfortunately, the plan was largely a failure. To help us understand why the plan failed and how mental health policies have changed over the years, we spoke to Andrew Sperling at NAMI. NAMI is the National Alliance of Mental Illness, and Andrew Sperling has been the Director of Legislative and Mental Health Policy at NAMI for the past 25 years. So the parents that started NAMI in 1979 were were very angry. Their adult children had been a large chunk of their adult lives committed to a state hospital and then through a process of deinstitutionalization, moving people out of those long-term state psychiatric hospitals, they were pushed out really into the oblivion. NAMI was founded after the passage of the Community Mental Health Act when people realized that deinstitutionalization just was not working. 
one of the challenges we have with deinstitutionalization is we never built the system of community care that was promised in that 1963 law. What the law did do was start decreasing the number of hospital psychiatric beds as promised. Over the next few years, thousands of psychiatric hospital beds vanished. In 1963, there were, you know, about half a million long-term psychiatric hospital beds. Now there's less than 70,000. One question I had was what did mental health care look like before deinstitutionalization was passed? I mean, what really is an institution and how is it different from a community center? To answer that question, we need to go even further back in time to the 1840s when one individual realized that there was something profoundly wrong with how inmates with mental illness were being treated in an East Cambridge prison. In the next segment, we learn how the United States built and then deconstructed the notion of institutionalized mental health care. We're going back to my hometown in Boston. Part 2. The Asylum. It's 1843, and a woman by the name of Dorothea Lynn Dix submits a petition to the legislative body of Massachusetts. She states, I come to present the strong claims of suffering humanity. I come to place before the legislature of Massachusetts the condition of the miserable, the desolate, the outcast. I come as the advocate of helpless, forgotten, insane, and idiotic men and women, of being sunk to a condition from which the most unconcerned would start with real horror, of beings wretched in our prisons and more wretched in our almhouses. Dorothea became one of America's most renowned leaders in mental health advocacy. She tirelessly crusaded to reform the horrifying conditions and treatments in jails, places that mental health patients were often cast aside. Her solution was the Mental Health State Hospital. Over the next 40 years, she lobbied to establish 32 of these state hospitals across the nation. These state hospitals became the norm, but people started calling them something different, an insane asylum. Truthfully, my conception of an asylum was pretty heavily influenced by its depiction in popular media entertainment. I think about Shutter Island, that movie where Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Ruffalo travel to this remote, insane asylum and they learn of ghosts and abuse and infamous patients. But it's important to note that Dorothea's conception of an asylum was much different than the present-day portrait that has plagued mental health history and become the central storyline of so many thrillers. In fact, the asylum was meant to be a safe place outside of the stress of urban life or of, of life in the community. They were built out of compassion. And over time, uh, we realized that this was exactly the wrong thing to do. State mental health hospitals quickly became overcrowded and conditions worsened. At the turn of the 20th century, reporters like Nellie Bly and Clifford Beers helped expose the horrible conditions in state mental health hospitals and change the narrative around these asylum institutions. So let's recap. Dorothea Dix helped establish mental health institutions as a better place for mental health patients. But unfortunately, these places actually turned out to have terrible conditions, and so people started to call for deinstitutionalization. And there's one more important factor that changed how we treat mental illness. In the early 1950s, scientists developed chlorpromazine, 
a drug generically known as Thorazine. Thorazine was the first successful antipsychotic drug that relieved many of the symptoms associated with schizophrenia. Before antipsychotic drugs, doctors used all sorts of procedures like talk therapy, sedation, lobotomy, chemical injections, or electric shock therapy to try and treat patients. Thorazine not only revolutionized how we treat mental illness, but it also changed how we think about mental illness. Scientists and medical professionals now had some evidence to start thinking about how mental illness is a brain disease rather than a behavioral problem. The development of antipsychotic drugs also helped reintegrate psychiatry with other medical specialties. Psychiatrists could now do more than listen to the problems of their patients. They could possibly cure them. And that notion, that idea that we could cure mental illness, encouraged clinicians and policymakers to invest more into research for treating mental illness. In 1946, President Harry Truman signed the National Mental Health Act that funded the establishment of the National Institute of Mental Health to continue research efforts. So, by 1963, when JFK signed the Community Health Centers Act, society had already developed a strong distaste for asylums and a sense that mental illness could be managed outside the institution in homes and communities with new antipsychotic drugs. Jesus, I mean, you guys do nothing but complain about how you can't stand it in this place here, and then you haven't got the guts just to walk out? I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake, crazy or something? Well, you're not. Part 3. The Exclusion Okay, so we're back to JFK's 1963 act. Let's talk about what happens next. President Johnson took over and led efforts to create a social safety net through programs like Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security. But mental health policy wasn't a priority. Sperling points to a specific statute that makes our system one of the most discriminatory towards mental health to this date? Well, they put something in, in 1965 called the IMD exclusion. What on earth is that? That stands for Institutions for Mental Disease. So one service was singled out for exclusion in terms of getting federal matching dollars from the Medicaid program, and it's services provided at an IMD. What is an IMD? Well, it's defined as any facility with 16 or more beds where half of the people in that facility have a mental illness, okay? Okay, so the IMD exclusion was a rule that prevented states from using federal Medicaid dollars to fund psychiatric hospitals. What was the intent here? Well, the intent was, hey, states, you built those facilities. They're yours. You can't use federal Medicaid dollars to underwrite and pay for those hospitals. We're trying to move people out of these places. Why would we set up a program and allow you to pump millions of dollars back into those hospitals? So basically what Sperling is saying here is that the IMD exclusion was intended to further move us towards deinstitutionalization and community-based care, while also shifting costs from the federal government onto the states. But at the same time, it was also extremely discriminatory because it de-incentivized psychiatric care by stunting the growth of hospital psychiatric care facilities. In fact, the IMD exclusion is the only section of Medicaid law that prevents states from receiving federal dollars to cover the costs of basic medical care. 
And remember, at this point, we don't have behavioral health centers in the community yet. The community centers were promised in the 1963 law, but were never fully funded or established before deinstitutionalization. So now there's a nationwide shortage of hospital psychiatric beds fueled by the IMD exclusion with no alternative for community-based care. At this point, it seems that the mental health care system has abandoned those with severe mental illness. Instead, patients are left with a revolving door of expensive acute hospitalizations, incarcerations, homelessness, and victimization. So, as our mental health care infrastructure disappeared, acutely ill mental health patients more frequently ended up in emergency rooms and jails. Mental health continued to be a low priority through the Johnson, Nixon, and Ford administrations. And it really didn't become a priority again until, you know, uh, Mrs. Carter was around. Rosalind Carter had a commission, and they finally got a law passed in 1980, and things were really going to change, and then the Reagan administration undid it. Sperling is referring to the Mental Health Systems Act of 1980, which would have provided grants to help grow community mental health centers if it hadn't been repealed in the Reagan administration. We didn't really get durable funding and standards for community-based care until 2014, with the Excellence in Mental Health Act that created the CCBHC program. There's a growing push to expand that program nationally, which we'll get into later in the next episode. Rosalind Carter, who is now 93, has also continued to be a driving force for improving mental health care over the past 35 years. In the next segment, we'll learn about efforts to level the playing field for mental health care accessibility. Let's jump to 1996. Part 4. Parity. Just like boarding is another word for waiting, parity is another word for equality. In other words, this means getting equal coverage for both mental health services and other medical services. Before parity, a plan could get away with saying that you have an unlimited number of doctor's visits for medical surgical coverage, but you could only get 10 to 20 doctor's visits for behavioral health. It could also mean you have a $500 deductible for medical surgical and a $5,000 deductible for mental health. It could be, it's a $10 copay when you go see an internist or a cardiologist, but it's a $50 copay when you go to a psychiatrist. And that was somewhat rampant in the healthcare system before parity came along. Insurers and employers traditionally treat mental health conditions differently than other physical conditions. Coverage for mental health care historically has had its own and typically higher cost sharing structures more restrictive limits on the number of inpatient and outpatient visits allowed, separate annual and lifetime caps on coverage, and different prior authorization requirements than coverage for other medical care, meaning that care is more expensive and less accessible for patients with mental illness. Sperling was there in the room when Congress passed the first set of parity laws in 1996. Matter of fact, my first day on the job, first day I walked in after Labor Day, Senator Pete Domenici and Senator Paul Wellstone, both of blessed memory, marched down to the Senate floor and offered uh, one version of the parity law, and it was adopted by the Senate that day. The law basically told insurance companies that they must apply the same annual dollar limits to mental health coverage as medical surgical coverage. What the law didn't do is mandate insurance coverage for mental health services to begin with. This law was an optimistic first step 
but still largely symbolic and didn't address other loopholes around parity, like visit limits and higher cost sharing. Senator Paul Wellstone, a key sponsor of the law, was even quoted saying, we didn't even get half the loaf. We just got the crumbs, but it's a start, end quote. 2008 is where we actually got the loaf. The next set of federal parity laws came in 2008, patching holes in the original law and extending equal coverage to both mental health services and substance abuse. One of the lead sponsors of this new law was Congressman Patrick Kennedy. Gentlemen's recognized for three minutes. Uh, thank uh, Chairman Pallone for his work in bringing the extension of this uh, mental health parity law to the floor. I want to acknowledge uh, his help on 1424 with the Paul Wellstone Mental Health and Addiction Equity Act. Say I join him in saying today is a great start in us extending this law on lifetime and annual limits, but as he mentioned, we want to get full parity, which means we want to get the real bill that extends full coverage. But the real champion of parity didn't come until 2010 with the Affordable Care Act. The ACA mandated coverage rather than requiring parity only if coverage is already provided. And while there was strong bipartisan support for all of these parity laws, actually enforcing parity proved to be much more difficult. The health plans get rid of the arbitrary numerical limits, right? The separate higher deductible, the higher cost sharing, the the caps on inpatient days and outpatient visits. They get rid of those discriminatory numerical caps and in response to that, engage in more aggressive utilization management. One example of aggressive utilization management is prior authorization. That's not a numerical limit. You're just simply telling before you admit to a psychiatric unit, you got to call the health plan and get permission. The challenge is when you do that on an arbitrary basis or do it with prioritization for every admission and you're not doing it for a patient with chest pain or a stroke or, or any other automobile accident or whatever it is under medical surgical coverage, we view that as discrimination. And the Obama administration, a guy named Richard Frank in 2013, when they wrote the rules for parity, identified that as non-quantitative treatment limits. Let's break that down. The parity laws focused on setting quantitative limits, meaning that, for example, a patient gets to pay the same amount of money for a psychiatric visit versus a non-psychiatric visit. But this could also mean the number of visits as well. So if you have to pay a $10 copay to go see a cardiologist, the price to see a psychiatrist is the same $10 copay. But health insurance companies still wanted a way to control costs. So they found a loophole through what Sperling calls non-quantitative treatment limits. These could include excluding certain drugs indicated for mental health illness from coverage or enforcing restrictions based on geographic location, facility type, and provider specialty, and the list goes on. The health plans argue that what does it mean to have parity for non-quantitative treatment limits, right? They're saying, we'll comply, but give us clarity as to what that means. And so we've struggled with that, the Labor Department in particular. The Labor Department regulates the enforcement of parity but has never really initiated litigation against insurance companies for violations of parity laws, which have run rampant in our system for years. Actually, it wasn't until April 2021 that we started seeing a shift towards parity enforcement. A week before we recorded this episode, United Healthcare settled in a landmark case, Walsh versus United Behavioral Health. A joint investigation by the Department of Labor and the New York Attorney General's Office found that United Healthcare had been unlawfully denying mental health coverage and addiction treatment services to thousands of people since 2013. As a result, United Healthcare paid $15.6 million to impacted beneficiaries and for violation fees. 
The insurance company's policy violated the 2008 Parity Act, but more importantly, it made it harder for people to access preventative health services before their condition spirals into an emergency. This is a huge milestone because in the 13 years since the 2008 law, it marks the first time that the Department of Labor has taken an insurance company to court to enforce parity. Think of our healthcare system like a building. You've taken the elevator to the very top floor, but what's the foundation of the building you're standing in? We know that in the mental healthcare system, there are deep cracks in the foundation of our healthcare. Cracks like a history of neglecting and imprisoning people with mental illness, whether that was at the time of Dorothea Dix in the 1800s, or in our present day where law enforcement is left to largely handle the mental health patients pushed out onto the streets. It's cracks like a failed promise in 1963 to implement community-based care as local emergency departments swell with people who have nowhere else to turn to. It's cracks like unequal treatment of mental illness and other medical conditions because it's all in your mind, even if that mind is housed inside your brain. It's being denied coverage for mental health services so that now your condition spirals into a crisis. And even if we step into present day, the fight for parity proves that our system still does not view mental health in the same light as medical health. Boarding is a direct result of our past and present day decisions to ignore it. And if we keep ignoring it, it's only a matter of time until our system collapses. In the next few episodes, we turn to leaders in our community, hospitals, and on the Hill about filling the cracks and building a system where having a mental health emergency doesn't mean 36 days boarding in an emergency room or crippling medical bills. Instead, it means that a mental health illness is treated just the same as medical illness. That's the goal. This episode was created by Sonia Lee and me with theme music by Tommy Scanlon. A special thanks to Jeff Byers, Sarah Kolk, and Patty Sweet for their guidance throughout the series. If you would like to learn more about any of the topics that we covered in this episode, please check out our show notes for links to more resources and ways to get involved.